Probably many of you know that one of the regular storylines in psychology today is the lack of resilience among Americans. The lack of resilience. If you've been teaching, we have quite a few teachers in this room. If you've been teaching for a decade, you know this has been a subject of conversation uh, for a good while now. Uh, employers bemoan this. There is a national epidemic of inability to handle adversity, inability to receive criticism, inability to face and walk through hardship. I've talked to many of you, uh, particularly in business, and I know you experience this as you try to employ people. At the same time that this is happening, this frailty, there's also a strong awareness of, and there's an appetite for, more and more comfortable circumstances. Softness. Technologies. They're offering more and more ease. You, you can just scan the, the news headlines on this. Cars that drive themselves. Essays that write themselves. Jobs done by machines so that you can have more time for leisure. That, that's the promise. You never have to be bored because you can always be entertained instantaneously by the magic thing in our phones. Most disturbingly to me, though, in place of the uncertainties and the tensions and the challenges of normal human relationship. Those things that mark being in relationship with another human being. We are now offered and can have an interactive relationship with artificial intelligence that says and does whatever you want and learns what you like. And so the, the problem compounds. The more ease we experience, the more we, we seek ease and comfort, padding for our emotions, padding for, for the, the psyche, for the ego, for the soul, the less we're able to bear difficulty and discomfort. And it compounds. We seek the ease and we break ourselves in the process. And so we become less and less able to bear difficulty, discomfort, even for a few minutes. Even for a few minutes. Now what's never being said explicitly, at least I've not seen it in the headlines, but it's constantly implied, is that you can have everything you want without consequences. You can have it all. Whatever you want. And nothing bad will happen. Does that sound familiar? You can have it all and nothing bad will happen. Did God forbid you to eat from any of the trees in the garden? You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You can have it all. You can be like God, and nothing bad will happen. You will not surely die. 
The enemy of mankind has not changed. He, his lies are the same today as they were in the Garden of Eden, as they were in the desert with Jesus. Same lies that he spoke to those Christians in Corinth 2,000 years ago. We're looking in the second letter to the Corinthians. We're in chapter 11. And the Apostle Paul was seriously in earnest about unmasking Satan and the workings of Satan among this people that he cares so much for. Workings that have brought so much trouble for that group of people. And this is what he says explicitly in chapter 11, verse 3. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It's the same enemy, the same lies, the same cunning. The enemy of God approaches God's people with the same allurements, and we have to be alert to them, awake, aware. We are just as, we're just as able to fall into those traps, but we are able to avoid them. So let's listen to what Paul has to say to them. And by God's grace, we will be better equipped. We'll be better able to discern. And then to fight and stand in our own time, in our circumstances. Because if we can take in God's word, we will have tools to distinguish between what is truly good and what kills. So at this moment in his letter, Paul wants to expose the evil of the false teachers. And he's been doing that. He's been doing that the whole letter by presenting the gospel. The genuine article, it, it unmasks, it reveals the false one. So he's been presenting the light by which they can discern the darkness. But also, he wants to move to a new tactic here. He says, measure the messengers by the message. The good message. How do the teachers match up with the gospel? How do the teachers match up with the king who dies so that he might forgive his killers? Do the messengers look like the Lord? In verse 1, he calls what he's doing here foolishness. Bear with me, he says, with a little foolishness. Now, this is a hint to some teaching that they know very well. Remember the first letter to the Corinthians? This is a letter that they have heard many times. It, it's helped form the identity of this people. It's been read over and over in their gatherings. And he had written in that letter, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Those words, they'd heard them many times. And so Paul is, he's again going to remind them, he is reminding them, that he's the wise fool. And he will be the wise fool. And he will remind them that the ways of God are so unlike the ways of men, so unlike what strikes us naturally as wisdom, that it seems like folly. A king who dies, that's ridiculous. Kings rule. Why would a king die? A king who dies, suffering that sets free. Humility that exalts. This seems like foolishness, but this is the way of Christ's family because it's the way of Christ. And Paul here, he puts himself in the position of a father to the Corinthian church. This is the way of our family. He says in verse 2, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband. That's the position of a father, like a father betrothing a daughter. To present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Christ as husband. Paul as father to this people. He brought them to understand the ways of Christ. So that they could receive the love of God. He made a good match. So God could shower his kindness and love on them. But now, through the false teaching, through this false message of pretending apostles... Satan has crept in, and he's diverted them from the devotion to Christ. You notice this is the language of adultery. Satan has come in and allured them to an adulterous relationship. This is deeply troubling for Paul. Verse 4. If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you tolerate it well enough. You seem to be fine with it. This is very troubling. In other words, these people, these people who've come in, they have talked about Jesus, your husband who you know, they've talked about him as different than he is. They've said his character and his personality are different than what you know it to be. And his spirit, who's guided you, who's blessed you. We know this is the church of Corinth. The spirit has blessed them with all manner of gifts. This spirit, you've ignored and these people have offered you a different spirit. And you have accepted that. You received it. The false teachers have claimed that goodness in life comes some other way than through the mercy and grace of Jesus. And you put up with that. You tolerate that. Most of us have had an experience kind of like this where... You are told a story about someone you know that doesn't match up. 
with what you know of them. Like you know your friend to be gentle, kind, unselfish, giving. And then you hear somebody talk about your friend suggesting selfishness. That he or she is aggressive, is a bully. In those situations, and I'd say most of us have had that situation, uh, you have to decide whether you're going to trust the relationship you have, trust your experience with this person, or give credence to this thing, this account that you're hearing. Will you accept that as true? This analogy fails. Um, it fails because we are, in fact, changeable. Um, we... We do sometimes treat some people better than we treat other people. Um, we have good days and we have bad days, and this can be true of us. God is not like us in this way. He is unchangeable. His character is constant. His very name, the I Am, it means he is who he is. He just is himself, and that does not change. He is the constant one. And so Paul is pained because the Corinthians have known him. They've known him in deep and powerful ways, and he's transformed their life. But somehow they have accepted ideas about him, ideas about his character and his ways that they know were untrue. But this is how deception works. It's subtle. And it works on the level of our desires. In this case, how we might want him to be. How we might prefer him to be. In verses 13 to 15, Paul says, <clears throat> It's no wonder that the false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguised themselves as apostles of Christ, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. It's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Otherwise, it wouldn't work very well, would it? If Satan appeared in, his, in the hideous guise of uh, outward rebellion, the fullness of archangel ruined the inversion of the glory that he had, the darkness he now bears, if he appeared like that, there would be nothing attractive about it. He disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan and his servants and their temptations appear to us in ways that are attractive to us. Deception is always attractive. Otherwise, it's not deception. <laughs> Otherwise, we would run away. Satan and the crew know what works on people. We, we are, in fact, simple. We are predictable. I was reminded recently of a story from a few years ago of sheep. Uh, about 300 sheep died one afternoon because one sheep 
tried to jump over a ravine. Didn't quite make it. 299 of them just followed over. We're simple. We're easily deceived. We're predictable. Deceptions always appeal to our need for significance, to matter, or to bodily relief or pleasure, or to our need to be loved and valued. Significance, mattering, comfort for the body, our dwelling in this flesh, the need for love, be valued. They always appeal there. And they work because they claim to meet those needs somehow better than the ways that God has given. Usually today it's quicker or more intense. These needs that you have, we can meet it quicker or a way that's more intense or more powerful than what God has designed. We look back, Satan, he offered to Eve to have God's knowledge, to have what he had, and therefore love and admiration of all. To have what God has will bring you the love, the admiration of all creation. And the forbidden fruit she saw, it was pleasant to eat. And it brought then immediate godlikeness. And no consequences, Satan said. Satan also, in the temptation in the desert, he offered Jesus immediate relief to his hunger. He was famished after 40 days of fasting, along with immediate rule, immediate glory. These things that were to be his, but he could have them now. And without suffering, without struggle, the lie is that the thing offered is better or better and free from negative consequences. Better and free from struggle, from time, from endurance. And these things work. Temptations work because there are ways to get significance quickly. Through power through destroying other people. You can lie and cheat your way in business and get ahead. You can push and you can manipulate your way. You can get into leadership. Yes, also, there are quick ways to bodily pleasure. Quick ways to relief that don't involve the tough parts of relationships. You can be on your phone all the time. You can entertain yourself all the time, endlessly. You can get an AI boyfriend or girlfriend who will never say something you don't want to hear and won't fall short like your spouse does. All these things, they, they will for a time and in some way meet that need. Meet a need that you have. And then they'll kill you. They'll kill you. And the echoes of demonic laughter will surround you 
as yourself crumbles. Satan wants to kill you. We are naive about the consequences of temptation. He wants to kill you and separate you from God forever. If you're in Christ, if you have been adopted, you've been made alive and you're a new creation. His tactic's a little different. He wants to kill your peace. He wants to kill your joy, your hope, your love, so that you will be completely unfruitful as a member of Christ. Though you're alive, he wants to cut off all fruitfulness for you. Those are high stakes. And given these stakes, it is distressing that we tolerate it. No wonder Paul is so distressed. You put up with it well enough. Why did they tolerate it? Why do we stand for it? It's because we're deceived about it. We are offered low levels of benefit with low levels of negative consequence. And we get dulled in our senses and we get spiritually sleepy. So that even when we begin to see the danger, even when we read an article or someone like me stands up here and sounds the alarm, we're sleepy. We lack the will to do anything about it. I see this especially with our technology. Everyone in here, let's let this register. Everyone in here knows that having the internet in our pocket, having access to it at all times, is not good for us. I've said it out loud. We, we know that it's true. Every one of us knows. We know that constant communication makes people anxious. It's not a secret. We know this. You feel the effect of it yourself. The little ding and the vibration of that phone, it makes us anxious. We know that social media can have harmful, even devastating, life-changing effects. We know, too, that YouTube is the primary way that evil people hook children on pornography for life. And adults. We know this. But we accept all of these things. We accept them. Because the pleasures are guaranteed and they're quick. And the negatives work so slowly until they don't. They tend to work so slowly that we're never put on our guard to them. We need to be alert. We need to be alert to what we're accepting bit by bit. I'm not instructing or suggesting any particular change. I'm just saying we need to be alert to this. We need to be alert to the messages that we we're receiving. Whatever those messages are, and to these messengers 
and how the messengers themselves affect us. I'm going to resist philosophizing on this. We could just go on for a long time. God's word offers a, uh, a contrast that we should give attention to. So in contrast to the deceptive appeals, the appeals that impress, the appeals that allure, uh, in this case, he's talking about a false gospel from false apostles. Paul says that he offers something simple. It's simple truth. And he offers in a way that fits the knowledge of God. Verses 6 to 7. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. And the this plain means, is a double referent. It means the knowledge is plain and our way of making it known is plain. The knowledge is, it's simple, it's straightforward. Our way of presenting it is simple, it's straightforward. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? He spoke the plain truth in a plain and simple way, and he did so without payment. He's already compared the false teachers with Satan. They're they're attractive. They're proud. Now he's showing that his way is like the Lord's way. His way is like the Lord's way. Glance back, chapter 8, verse 9. It was a key verse. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor for your sake, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. God humbled himself in Christ Jesus, and he suffered in order to scatter the riches of eternal life. And Paul is following in that way of Jesus. He had also humbled himself so that they might be exalted. As he says, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? The way that he walked is the way of Jesus. And he did this so that they would understand the gospel is free of charge And it's free for all. The gospel is for all. And so he refused to charge them for his teaching. Um, This is a little lost on us, but it was a norm for traveling Greek teachers and philosophers to charge. If they came to a new town, before they would deliver anything, they'd make their task known and they would require some some contributions before they'd share their philosophy. Now, these guys, the super apostles who he's talking about, I'm arguing, I think they are Jewish Gnostics. Gnosticism arose from within Judaism, and it was a mixture of uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Platonic philosophy and paganism. And so they've been claiming that Anything that is, any teaching that's worth anything ought to be paid for. And Paul counters that with, not if you love someone, 
Not if you love them. And it's love that brings him to them. Love for God, love for them. And so if his message is going to be the authentic gospel, his method has to look like Jesus too. Now let me conclude with this. Our enemy has not changed. Neither in his malice, nor in his methods, nor in the deception that he brings, or the ways that he appeals to our desires. But neither has the Lord Jesus Christ changed. And Jesus has won. This is good. This is good news. Jesus has won. He has defeated Satan and he's defeated the forces of evil through the foolishness of the cross. He overcame the power of sin and death by taking sin and death to himself in the cross, judging those things in the grave, judging our, judging our frailties, judging our willingness to receive deception and lies about him, judged, judging every deception, and then rising in glory. And so as his children, as his followers, we don't recover the goodness of Eden by walking in the ways of Satan, or in the ways of his adopted family. You know, what Satan did in the garden was he adopted Adam and Eve. Uh, he adopted them and their line as his. And that's the, the family we were born into. That's what original sin conveys. In being born anew, being adopted by Christ. We're adopted into a new family with new ways. And we don't recover the goodness and the joys of Eden by the ways of Satan and his adopted family, by seizing, by taking in the ways that most appeal to us, when and however we want. Following the Lord we receive the goodness and the joys of Eden as gift. That's how they were meant to be received from the beginning. As gift, not as taken. And so we follow the Lord and we walk the way of the cross, which is the way of dying to self, bringing those corrupted desires to the cross, and receiving back whatever the Lord gives us. Because He is generous and gracious. And so we trust that whatever he gives us, this is how we walk in faith, is trusting that whatever he gives us is for our good. And when the quick way and the easy way is offered, we turn back in trust to him. We turn back to the one who loves us and receive what he gives us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you know this is hard for us. Uh, we still walk about in this flesh 
that was trained up in fallenness. Lord, have mercy on us. When our flesh demands that we attend to the things that are perishing, Lord, have mercy and help us. Speak of your gift and enable us to trust you, especially when it is hard. Amen.